the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You are driving home, no doubt. Lots of hustle and bustle and traffic all around you at the moment. But I want you to kind of focus for a moment, if you would. Picture your most idyllic spot to escape to. Maybe it's a small mountain cabin overlooking sun-kissed lake by summer and snow-capped mountains by winter. Perhaps a Spanish-style home with red-tile roof looking out onto the Great Plains with wild horses roaming about. Yours could be a waterfront view from a private beach surrounded by seagulls, waterfowl of every description, and the occasional passing fisherman. Now imagine for a moment such a spot, not just a getaway or a dream spot that you would hope to someday visit, if not read about, but rather a place you call home. Susan Walters calls such a place home, and we find out why inside the pages of a new book called At the End of the Ferry. Susan, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I must tell you, for most readers, no doubt, they look at your book and they begin to get drawn into the pages of your day-to-day life experience and must think, you know, this is either the fulfillment of a retirement dream or a lottery (laughs) winning. (laughs) Oh, it's just pretty special. You have spent your life as a professional writer. You were in the real estate world for quite a number of years. You've been in the hustle and bustle of of big towns with big names that we would all recognize. And now you've been able to kind of unplug from all of that and in many respects, not just see nature for what it is, but I think at the same token, see God for who he is in all of this. And I have to wonder, as as your story tonight unfolds, first and foremost, people think about the quietness of the sea and watching the sunset and hearing the sound of the seagulls as they fly in and out and, and whatnot and have to wonder, well, wait a minute now, how in the madness of this day and age that we live in do you unplug from the clutter of the Internet, cell phone, text messages, and 55-inch widescreen TVs? Is this really possible? It really is possible, and it's truly a dream come true for me. And I was a big city girl for a long time, and we live in a small town. We still do big city things and have responsibilities, and it's a smell, a noise, a sound. It's really touching nature, and like you said, getting in touch and being still and being closer to to the Lord. It's very, very special. Your book, At the End of the Ferry, really walks us through day-to-day life in your home that has, in so many respects, almost served as a magnifying glass to the wonder of the simplicity of life. What's that experience like on a day-to-day basis? It is truly a joy, you know, when you have not, for 17 years, 17 summers, I had not gone barefoot. You know, I mean, you know, you get, like you said, into the hustle and bustle of life, and it's nice to take your eyes off of the computer screen and just focus on what's outside and just the random acts of, I would say, random and deliberate acts of the Lord and what He shows you through nature and wildlife and gardens and 
just a small northwest town. Give us the snapshot if you can. You're, you're up there in the Pacific Northwest, Puget Sound area for those that might be familiar. Maybe some people have had an opportunity to, to head up and visit the San Juan Islands. It's a spectacular part of the upper portion of the west coast of the United States. Mm. But your, your little hamlet there, tell us a bit about it. Paint the picture. Well, it is um, 90 feet of waterfront on the Puget Sound, and it is Woodlands Garden and just nature. I mean, we even had a bear in our yard, but, you know, we were close to town, but you get the wildlife and the nature, and we have eagles, and they eat off of a stump in our yard, and we have surprises every day. It's calming. It's peaceful. It's also wildlife. I mean, there's there's some wild things happening, too. So um, it's just fun taking in the oysters, the clams, the salmon. You know, we cook what we grow. We can get clams right off our beach. And it's just really a special, special place. Your place and the experiences that you share inside the pages of At the End of the Ferry strike me as as being celebratory of the the finer things in life, uh, being surprised by God, as you say, in so many delightful ways. And I, for the benefit of listeners, there are paragraphs where Susan talks about what happens when a seagull lands on your porch. Now, for most suburbanites, Susan, we wouldn't know it if a bus crashed through the living room. And yet you were able to stop for a moment, freeze a snapshot in time, and stop, and I would imagine just look at the wonder of the behavior. And I have to think for a moment, as you're surrounded by all of this beauty of God's creation, how can you but not stop and say, wow, God, what a wonderful, awesome God you are. It truly does make you be in awe. Just to be still and pay attention and have seeing eyes and touching, I feel very, very fortunate. I highly recommend people, wherever they live, just get in tune to what's what's out there around them. It could be a yellow jacket that falls asleep in a foxglove, you know. Um, it could be a chipmunk, you know, the tree trunk traffic. It's a joy to just pay attention to. I just think these are gifts from God to us. Has this been a life-changing experience in the sense that getting away from the hustle and bustle of the noise and the traffic and being able to, again, realize that the big traffic jam is that the squirrel had to stop to let the snake slither by, and it took all of 10 minutes to transpire. I mean, I, I realize not all of us can have kind of the on Golden Pond experience. I, I remember that one scene, you probably recall if you saw the film with Henry Fonda and, and Catherine Hepburn when she talks about the color lilies are in bloom again. Such a wonderful opportunity. Was this kind of a life-changing experience for you then? It was. It was, it was an absolute dream of mine. We had vacationed up here for years and years. Sometimes I would cry when we had to go home because I just, I loved it. I just saw so much that just spoke to my soul. I would say it definitely changed me in that I wasn't a high profile job. I still had to work and make a living and I still hit the wall on some things. I mean, even though I got to live in this small Northwest town, but it definitely made me a more peaceful person, definitely brought me closer to the Lord. And I treasure this experience in this world. I just feel very, very fortunate and blessed. 
If you've just joined our conversation, Susan Walters with us tonight. We're talking about her delightful new book called At the End of the Ferry. It's an opportunity to really kind of escape from the madness and get reconnected with the simpler, finer things in life. And in many ways to recognize that even as we often in day-to-day living as we're heading to and from work and stopping the kids off at uh, soccer practice, going by and picking up uh, groceries at Safeway or Costco and getting home and paying the bills and the water heater is leaking in the garage and you know all of that stuff that we go through that at the end of the day sometimes we need to make an intentional decision to disconnect from that step away as susan suggests maybe walk out into the backyard and just contemplate for a moment the honeybee busying its work around the blossom of a tree and recognizing the interdependence that those two have with each other, that the tree does not bring forth fruit, save the pollinization job done by the honeybee, and that, in a sense, the life is of, of that fruit tree is dependent upon the honeybee as much as we, oftentimes not aware of God's presence, but nevertheless must depend on his presence for very life itself, our very breath, every single day to pause for a moment and ponder the wonder of the ability to inhale and exhale and the joy that that brings all inside the pages of this new book and we're going to talk more about life at the end of the ferry with susan walters as this edition of lifeline continues and now back to lifeline with craig roberts Truth be told, I could just sit and listen to that for the balance of my life and never complain. Susan Walters getting just such an experience detailed inside the pages of At the End of the Ferry. The book, by the way, is available on the web. You can check it out at christianreading.com forward slash S Walters, W-A-L-T-E-R-S. Or you can order the book by calling toll free 866-909-2665. That's 866-909-2665. 65. As we move back to your story, Susan, I would imagine there must be times when there's this sense of God sort of through nature vigorously shouting, I'm here, I made all this, and I love you. Do you feel like that at times? <laughs> Absolutely. It's pretty incredible. And it's hard to describe, but you, you know it in your heart, and you would never want to give it up. And by the way, Craig, I have your constant comment ready with two lumps of sugar and some lemon. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> I'll be right there. <laughs> it is definitely showing me how God is omnipresent. He's there. He's there. He's in nature. It gives you a peacefulness and it allows you to be still and know that he is God. It's um, really, really a treasure. When you walk out on your front porch and you're surveying and kind of taking in everything around you, do you have time, Susan, when you wonder, how can an atheist be an atheist? And I ask that question because you you look at all of this, and, and to me, in so many ways, it shouts God's glory and God's presence. Absolutely. We had a butterfly bush and never had one of those before, and the the spider ate the butterfly. You see these things and you say, this just can't happen, just man didn't do this, you know? And it's really more than you can comprehend, and sometimes I don't have the words for it, but that's why I journaled it. I thought, I have to tell this story. Every day I have to write down, because every day the Lord is showing me something that is so spectacular and so miraculous, and that only He could do. And... 
it's definitely brought me closer to him. What about the town, too? I would imagine as much as this has been kind of a life-changing experience for you to turn off the, the din of the madness and allow God to have his way. Are people different, too? Do you see it affected in the lives of people around you oh, as well? Oh, absolutely. And they love to talk about nature. They love to talk about wildlife. If they saw a great blue heron nest or they saw an osprey get kicked out of a nest because the eagle wanted it, you know, they'll, they talk about nature. They talk about wildlife. It's just very common. It's just very casual. Um, the people no, no, you're not going to tell me people do things like bake cookies and rolls and bring them <laughs> piping hot over to your house, are you? Absolutely. You know, very giving, very into each other and neighborly. And they bring me bouquets of flowers they grew in their garden. You know, I bake um, homemade cinnamon rolls and the neighbors know about those. And they know about my granola chocolate chip cookies. And we um, share things or blueberries or raspberries. You know, when it's the season, we take them to each other. And it is a fun, small town. It's special people. It's um, Santa Claus rides on the fire truck through the neighborhood and throws candy at the kids, you know, at Christmas time. And it has a lot of uh, very, very special things. It must do a lot in terms of renewing your sense of hope for this country, too. Yeah, it does. It definitely does. It's uh, people care about each other. You know, these people care. They get involved. They're not out in the boonies or anything like that. I mean, we're a half-hour ferry boat ride from Seattle, so we're right near the city. They know their neighbors. We get together as neighbors. We'll have um, dinners where we go one house to the other, and we care about what's going on in the world, and we care about what's going on in our town. Kind of see this this circle happening here where you get away from the madness, the outdoor growth bigger, and as it does so, it ends up amplifying the voice of God. Now you get closer in your relationship with Him, and then after a season, the outdoor gets smaller, and friends and people and the things in life that really matter get bigger. Do they? It's definitely about values. It's definitely about loving your neighbor as yourself, to treasure one another and care about one another, and then then you care about the bigger picture, too. So many of the chapters, and I'll mention to listeners, this is an easy read. It's a delightful read. It's one of those reads where you pick it up over the cup of coffee or tea or two or three. Uh, you, <laughs> you really fly through page by page, put it down, and then set it aside for a day or two and then come back and say, you know, I need to get away again. Again, and you pick up the book and you start, and every chapter leads you into something new. I've read the book through, and then in preparation for our conversation today, started to go through it again. And I was struck mm-hmm. you talking there one point. I think it's somewhere along the month of August or, or September. It's it's getting into the fall season, and you talk about a squirrel. And I thought, what an escape for those of us in the big city, where the biggest thief in the neighborhood doesn't have a rap sheet a mile high, but rather, in your case, has a, a pile of acorns a mile high. You know. <laughs> This squirrel actually took the tomatoes I was growing and dried them up on our rooftop, you know, to eat them. You know, so, you know I, I don't know. It's it's just fun seeing uh, nature do its thing. It is a mental vacation, definitely. And in fact, an attorney friend from Seattle told me that it's really kind of caused him to just, you know, stop and pay more attention to what's going on you know, around. And, and but, when friends and family come in from the big town, Seattle, to visit, are they astonished after a while there at your home, Susan? that the flowers have names. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, they really do have names. I mean, that, that came from the nursery with that name, you know. I mean, they love to come here. Even my brother and my four nephews and nieces and his wife live in Seattle, and they love to come over here. It's a different world. It is a slower world. It's a beautiful world. I get calls from North Carolina relatives and friends from Tennessee from asking to come visit, and they love it. It's it's refreshing. It's very special. I feel very, very blessed. I, just hearing you describe it, I, I can smell mulling spices <laughs> and the apple cider on the stove. <laughs> You're right. And you and you replaced that stove, I understand. I understand that you had a little visit from the fire department. The old uh, <laughs> yeah. oil stove finally finally gave up the ghost, so to speak. You still have, you know, you, you, you talked about water heater leaking, things like that. You know, you still have real life things happen. And yeah, the fire department came and that old stove had to go. Your heating system up here, by the way, is really special. You know, wood burning or little potbelly stoves. One of the things men that have read my book like is the story about the egg man that we go to an egg ranch to get our eggs and a lot of people sell things honey. So we go to their house and get our honey or we go, of course, farmer's markets, which you guys have down there too. But this egg man, he lives down this windy road past two ponds and it's always something exciting in those ponds. Siberian snow geese or waterfowl or today I, I saw, I couldn't tell if it was a coyote or a fox actually, but this egg man and he's got an old refrigerator and outbuilding and it's functional. Is just an old refrigerator, and we just go help ourselves. And and we went down there, and we got our eggs. And the dormer window of this old brick house opened up upstairs, and I see this man in his plaid pajamas, leaning out the window. And he said, "Are there any eggs? Are we out of eggs?" And we said, "No, we got them." And he kind of laughed. I think he went back to bed, and we didn't realize it was before six in the morning. I had been writing all morning, early morning and night, and didn't realize the time it was. And we just have experiences like that. Well, the fact that you can inter- interact with people in that kind of a fashion, you know, kind of pays tribute to to an older and simpler time in America, a time that most of us thought had kind of slipped through our fingers like the, the sands going through the hourglass, and yet what a delight and relief to know that, that places like this still exist, and they still exist here in America, and people like Susan Walters are able to write about those experiences and share them then with all of us, and, and I think in many respects, beyond just Susan, your reflection of life on the Puget Sound and and the ability to hear and see God in in so many ways maybe is not so obvious to the person in the, you know, uh, traffic lines, smog-clogged city streets that we have in in the urban areas. It's been for you, I would imagine, an opportunity to almost kind of evangelize the word that God is still alive and well and his creation all about us shouts his glory. Absolutely. Definitely a simpler life and definitely values that I think that loving him and loving our neighbor as ourselves that's the greatest command and we're, we're really able to do that. And people see it. Katie, who wrote on the back of my book, is a young woman I've been mentoring and she... It's really, you know, changed her life. She knew the Lord, but she really wants to walk closer with Him, and she's got three little boys, and she's she's an actual meteorologist in Phoenix, Arizona, and it definitely has an impact. It does. It overflows. It definitely overflows. That's my hope, that the book will bring joy to people, help them to see that even in the tough times, and there are tough times right now in the economy, and people are losing their homes and things, and that it will really bring them closer to the Lord and um, help them to see what what's really valuable. And you know, as you point out, oftentimes the the greatness of the wonder of God's love for us is not in the castles built by man, but might be as simple as stepping out in the backyard and looking at the interaction between, uh, you know, the bee and the tree, as I mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. and just be able to witness God's love for us firsthand in things that we 
oftentimes look right past, don't we? Absolutely. Just the peacefulness of mind and soul. And I I know in quietness and confidence shall be your strength is one of my favorite verses. And I just think um, to have a quiet and peaceable life is very rich. And it doesn't have to be money or riches. And it can be a pot of petunias on your little patio. For all of us that would like to be able to get away and to reconnect with God, I think this in, in very simple ways accomplishes that. The book again is called At the End of the Ferry. And you can get more information about ordering it by calling 866-909-2665. Again, 866-909-2665 or online, as I say, at christianreading.com forward slash S. Walters. Now, many in the audience will know your husband, and I'm, and I'm fearful to let the cat out of the bag only because the phone will be ringing off the hook with reservation requests. <laughs> so uh, we sure appreciate, though, Susan, you taking some time to uh, share your story and your experiences with our listeners here tonight in Northern California, and most delightfully to, in a sense, uh, open your heart and your lives and your home and the bounty of God's created world there in the Pacific Northwest uh, inside the new book. And I just urge folks, you're looking to get away? Boy, here's an easy way to do it that'll get you away and get you back to God at the end of the ferry. And Susan Walters, thanks so much for the time, Susan. Thank you, Craig, so much. Take care. Always a delight. Take care now. And again, I remind you, the book newly published by Zulon, you can get it online at christianreading.com forward slash S. Walters at the end of the ferry. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It was a number of years ago, traveling into China, when I first very clearly and distinctively became aware of the international problem of human trafficking. You know, we think of slavery and things of this sort from an American perspective, largely based on America's experience with the issue of slavery back in the 1800s. It was an eye-opening, startling experience for me to come to the realization that human trafficking is very much alive all over the world today, even taking place here in the United States. And it, it takes place in, in many fashions for a lot of different reasons. In China, walking along a street in a major city of the South one day and seeing a number of young girls, some of whom had obvious limbs missing, had been maimed, perhaps, I thought, in an accident of some sort. And talking with a missionary friend and interpreter, I began to inquire about the alarming number of young ladies that I saw on this particular street that seemed to have uh, a missing arm or a missing hand, something of this nature. And I inquired as to why this was, feeling it was kind of unusual. He went on to explain to me that, well, these are cast-offs. These are young girls who had been kidnapped from their home villages, brought into major cities, and sold as sex slaves, largely the tourist trade. And on occasions, these young girls would fail to cooperate, would perhaps try to uh, turn their captors into the authorities, and so as retribution, they would typically cut off an arm or a hand to maim them in one fashion or another as a means of defiguring them, making them less desirable, handicapping their ability to earn a living, and ultimately punishing them for not being cooperative with the sex traffickers. 
that opened my eyes to what has become a global problem. And as we talk about this topic today, I'm joined by Sean Litton. Sean is Vice President of Field Operations on behalf of International Justice Missions. They direct casework operations around the world in places from Latin America to Africa, South Asia, Southeast Asia, developing intervention strategies and advocating with local and national authorities to address the problem of human trafficking around the globe. And Sean, great to have you on the program today. Craig, it's wonderful to be with you. Thank you. That experience that I had in China a number of years ago, I sadly have come to discover, was not a unique and rare one, but in fact is taking place in more and more places around the globe today, even in so-called developed nations. Tell us why. Well, uh, the main problem, is, as we see it, is in uh, countries where the laws against these crimes are not enforced at all. In other words, the traffickers, the criminals, the pimps who are uh, uh, selling these children have no fear of any sanction, no fear of any repercussion, no fear of any negative consequences, and so they engage in this practice with impunity, despite the fact that in almost every country uh, today it's against the law. It's against the law to sell children for sex. And yet in spite of that, of course, we see the sex trafficking trade uh, growing pretty significantly. Of course, we've perhaps caught a special or two of what goes on in, in places such as uh, parts of Southeast Asia, um, and countries that we're all too familiar with, Thailand, for example. And as this sex trafficking trade is, is growing and developing, um, talk to us a bit about, number one, how girls get even pulled into all of this. And, and why it seemingly is being allowed to flourish in some countries. Right. So the children that get involved typically um, are migrating. So they're, they're, they're from very poor and impoverished areas. And someone comes to their village, somebody from their same ethnic group. Uh, they generally refer to them as an auntie. Um, they come to the village. Maybe they're from the village or a nearby village. And they, they say tell their parents, you know, I can help your daughter find a good job in the city. The daughter feels a debt of gratitude to her parents uh, in many of these cultures, and, and she's obligated to care for them. And so she wants to help her parents, so she'll go with this auntie, and, and then the auntie, uh, it turns out, is a trafficker, and rather than give her a good job or take care of her, this young woman will be sold into a brothel. And once there... Um, She's, she's locked away, she's, she's kept from going for help, but even if she could go for help, usually she doesn't speak the local language. Um, she sees the police coming by the brothel and collecting money every week, so there's really nowhere for her to turn. She has no access to her family. They're from a village up in the hills or far, far away, or even in another country in many cases. And she's literally trapped. And then uh, if she refuses to participate, if she refuses to cooperate, they'll deny her food. Um, In many cases, she'll be beaten. She'll be forced to watch watch pornography. And just over time, they will wear her will down until she submits. She submits herself to this abuse um, that goes on day after day after day after day. And these girls, Sean, literally get trapped into this scenario. They're far away from home. They're embarrassed about the circumstances that have taken place. And quite often, those that are engaged in the sex trafficking threaten these girls and their families, don't they? Absolutely, yes. And so, you know, the trafficker will tell the girl, I paid good money for you. And if, if you don't cooperate, then, you know, I will find your family. Or 
there'll, there'll be stories of girls who have attempted to run away only to be brought back and killed in front of the other girls to frighten them into submission and cooperation. It's pretty horrifically manipulative, isn't it? I mean, aside from the horror of what they're drawing these young girls into, quite often, as you suggest, uh, they are trying to better their station in life, maybe move from a village into the city with the hope and promise of earning more money to take care of their family. Maybe they're somebody in the family that's ill. They need uh, money because of additional medical expenses, things of this sort. We've even seen cases of human sex trafficking taking place where women and men sometimes are being lured with promises of of immigration into the United States. And if you come over, we'll help uh, pay your way and get you into the country, things of this sort, only to find out that once they arrive here, not having any contacts, having no command of the language, suddenly they're being forced into sex slavery. Exactly, yeah. And they have you know, their their passport, if they had one, has been taken away, so they're in the country illegally, and they feel there's nowhere to turn. If they go to the authorities, they'll be arrested for, you know, illegal immigration. We've seen the stories, as I mentioned earlier, coming out of places like Thailand, the Philippines, other so-called even uh, uh, sex tourism destinations. And certainly I think there's a growing sense of awareness of the problem globally. But I'm curious, Sean, based on your years of involvement with international justice missions, I understand you, in fact, came out of private practice in your own law firm to be involved in this ministry or organization. Are we hearing more of these stories simply because the reporting is getting better, or are we hearing more of these stories because the horrificness of this crime is on the increase? It's hard to say exactly. There there's certainly is a great deal uh, more reporting and a great deal of it, more attention being uh, focused on this issue. But at the same time, what you have is massive economic migration happening um, as people in more and poorer countries move towards those who are more wealthy, where there's more jobs, and this is a this is part of globalization. It's part of a global phenomena. At, at the same time, more and more roads are getting into these villages, you know, that have been formerly isolated and safe, and by their isolation, and so then the traffickers have access to more and more uh, people to to move into the sex trade. So it's a combination of of both greater attention on the issue, and again, I, I do think that's expanding as the process of globalization and the process of economic migration uh, increases. Talk to us a bit about the role that international justice missions is taking in not only addressing increased awareness of this, uh, creating a more hostile environment for those in, engaged in the trafficking, in the slavery end of, of all of this, but then, too, uh, the hope that your organization is providing in helping to get these women, and sometimes men, out of this terrible lifestyle. Right. So when in our offices, so, for example, I worked in an office in Thailand, also an office in the Philippines, so we'll do investigations, and we have undercover investigators that will go out and locate these establishments that are selling children for sex. We'll document the identity of those children, the identity of the individuals that are selling them. Um, we'll, we'll bring that back. We have a team of lawyers that will review it. We'll write a report, and then we'll go to the local authorities and, then, and advocate with the authorities. And the evidence that we bring, of the it's a violation of law, but now they have such strong evidence of it that they can't deny it's happening. And so we'll push them and push them until they take action. And then... The, the, the object there is to ensure that the girls are rescued and that the individuals that were exploiting them are brought to justice. So there's an arrest, uh, criminal prosecution of the traffickers and the pimps and the brothel owners, hopefully leading to conviction, a, a sentence in prison, 
And then for the girls, we have teams of social workers that work with them and different um, homes. We call them aftercare homes, working on dealing with the uh, consequences of abuse, both in terms of their emotional health, their spiritual health, and trying to find out whether they can return home, whether that's a viable option. If not, what would be a viable life option for them and giving them education and skills so that they can have a have new life. Oh, so there's just a multiplicity of levels that need to be addressed. And when we come back, I want to talk a bit about what's happening in terms of government involvement to try to deal with this, where the judicial system is, both here stateside and internationally, and most importantly, what the church, the body of Christ can be doing in partnering with and cooperating with organizations like International Justice Missions um, to help not only raise awareness, but also provide a way out for so many women all over the globe that have been caught up in human trafficking. I'm Craig Roberts here in tune with Lifeline. A brief timeout. Back to more of our conversation with Sean Litton, Vice President Field Operations for International Justice Missions, as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. Craig Roberts along with our special guest, Sean Litton. Sean is Vice President of Field Operations with International Justice Missions. You can get more information, by the way, on the organization online at IJM.org. That's IJM.org. We're talking about the plight of human trafficking around the globe. And you know, it's interesting because so often when we think of slavery, we put it contextually in America, historically, into what happened here in the United States and many parts of the globe back in the 1800s. And it seems to be somewhat satisfying to think that we've dealt with the issue here at home and therefore it's no longer a problem. It's no longer our problem. But is it? Well, it is, in fact, at many levels. Not only does it continue to be a global problem, but in fact, in many respects, it's our problem, both in terms of the fact that many of these women that are being kidnapped or given promises of a new life in America brought here to be engaged, and they find out later, in the sex trade and then literally end up getting trapped in that lifestyle with no avenue to turn and here illegally, fearful of seeking out any assistance from police or the authorities. And then moreover, Growing numbers of people who travel abroad to engage in so-called sex tourism. It's a sad, sad state of affairs, and yet one that is um, reporting perhaps gets a better awareness increases is something that all of us need to be more educated upon and do something to bring justice to these people. Sean Litton is with us. And, Sean, let's talk a bit about um, the problem, whether it goes from um, sexual assault, bonded labor. I mean, there's a variety of reasons why this kind of human trafficking is taking place. And as we suggest, it's not just a problem in the West. It's a problem uh, globally. Even the continent of Africa, we're seeing this take place. Yeah, it is a global uh, phenomenon, and it's it's important to understand that when we talk about human trafficking, we're not just talking about sex, sexual slavery or sex trafficking. It's any type of for, uh, labor without consent. We're basically talking about slavery. It takes many different forms. So it could be working on a cocoa plantation in West Africa or working on a fishing boat, forced little boys forced to work in a fishing boat in Ghana, or you know, it could be young girls in brothels in Southeast Asia or um, people working in a brick kiln or a rice mill or a rock quarry in India. So it takes many different forms, but it's all slavery. Even we've seen a recent increased awareness of the so-called uh, blood diamond trade, too. Mm, yeah, that's another area where anytime you know, there's a, a lack of law enforcement and a permissive atmosphere where people need labor, 
it's always going to, you know, slave labor is always cheaper, right? But if there's no law enforcement, then there's no reason for the people um, who own the facility to, to pay. So they can just trick people into it. There's a plentiful supply of people who are desperate for work. This is a problem taking place at many tiers in the West, in the developed nations, in developing nations, and one that I think needs to be dealt with at a variety of levels. Talk to us a bit about the role, and uniquely, that IJM is playing in all of this. Well, the first thing that we're doing is, is in the places where we're working, in Southeast Asia, and India, and Africa, and Latin America, we're basically shining a, a, a flashlight right on the issue, but... At, a lot of people will say there's terrible trafficking, but to actually go in, to work undercover, to actually document the situation, to show exactly how it's happening, and then to collaborate with the local justice authorities to take action, to take action against the perpetrators and to ensure the rescue and restoration of the victims. But that's not enough. It's just not enough to rescue, um, rescue the girls. You've got to do something that prevents other girls, other young women, other people from experiencing this abuse. In order for that to happen, there needs to be a reliable deterrent. There has to be an end to impunity. And so we work with in building the capacity and the will of the local justice system to actually enforce the law and extend the protection of the law um, to, all, to all the vulnerable young women in the, in the area so that, you know, that the brothel owners um, move away from, from working with women against their will from, from trafficking in young children. Is this casual, or are there degrees where it's highly organized and coordinated? I, I ask that question because there seems to be so many layers of this web that's taking place to, you know, kidnap women in one part of the world, manage to escond them and get them into countries like the United States, and then get them into a system over here, it would seem to me that at certain levels, uh, Sean, this isn't very casual, but in fact, highly organized. Yeah. So it's true that it, there's a full range. So, for example, in the United States, it is highly organized. You're dealing with or organized crime. Same thing in Eastern Europe. In Asia, there are places where the criminals are highly organized. In other places, it's it's just a simple brothel that's being run by, you know, a, a local businessman, et cetera, a local pimp. Um, in in terms of the the labor trafficking, it could just actually be the regular business practice of that area is that you you trick people into working in your brick kiln or your rice mill, and then you you hold them there, and you never let them leave, and you and you pay them just enough to buy enough food to live. And it's a regular business practice, so it, it's not—it's not even seen as a crime, even though it's against the law. I know that your organization has been successful at creating creating some pretty successful pilot programs in certain parts of the world. I know specifically in Metro Cebu in the Philippines over the last several years, um, you in working with local authorities and spreading out in, in, throughout the region uh, have been successful, I understand, Sean, in seeing a reduction in child sex trafficking of nearly 80%? Yeah, that's true. Um so in that in that case, um, it was a pilot project, and there was a uh, a measurement taken by a group of international criminologists to get a, a level of what was the level of abuse happening in the city, and then we instituted our program, basically increasing the capacity of law enforcement, the capacity of local prosecution, the judiciary, working with the aftercare facilities to increase the level of services going to victims and. And then uh, three years later, when they came back and did another measurement to see the effect of 
the arrests and the rescues and all the rehabilitation, they found 80% fewer girls being exploited in the city and in the metropolitan area, and 75% fewer establishments that had any children at all. It was a, it was a pretty amazing result. In addition to not only reducing the atmosphere that, that allows this typically to, to flourish, providing victim relief, aftercare, uh, accountability then to for the perpetrators of all of this, um, long-term transformation, do you get the sense that we're starting to make some headway and moving in the right direction? Absolutely. In the Philippines, for example, so after we instituted that project and the government saw the results, they came to us and said, can you help us on a national level? And and the, the, the key issue with all these projects is, are they sustainable? In other words, unless it's the government itself doing it, no organization like IJM or any other organization can sustain it on their own. But in this case, the Philippines took the model in Cebu and is now replicating it throughout the country with their own money, their own resources. They're setting up new police units. They're expediting the prosecution of trafficking cases. They're increasing the capacity of the aftercare systems. The government's doing this on their own, and so we're seeing the ripple effect of just one model of showing how how it can work to increase the, 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 the enforcement of the law can reduce the problem, and now it's being replicated throughout the entire country. And in the other countries where we're working, we're seeing the same effect, that gradually it's happening at a, a slower rate, but gradually, um, as people see the results, they, they, want, they want to put more energy into it. And, of course, your organization is helping to spearhead a lot of this, educate folks. And toward that end, we mentioned the fact that you are in town speaking at a conference dealing with this very issue. If, ultimately, Sean, folks want to find out more about how they can get involved in partnering with IJM to make a difference and the role that the church needs to be playing, quite frankly, from the, the standpoint of our justice obligation, what kind of resources are available through the IJM website toward that end? Well, the the website is by far the best place to start. There's also um, a an app you can download if you have a smartphone. Um, you can follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Um, there's there's a book called Good News About a Justice that you can find you know through through the website or or through a um, a bookseller um, that kind of lays the foundation for what we're doing, what the biblical foundation is for seeking justice for the poor and the oppressed. Um, you can become a freedom partner. You can support the organization financially. You can pay for the rescue that the poor cannot afford to buy for themselves. Um, you can sign up to receive our uh, upcoming holiday gift catalog. You can give the gift of rescue to people. And uh, most importantly, and what I'd love for people to do, is join us as prayer partners. Um, you can do that through the website, and then you'll get updates on kind of where we're working, the obstacles we're running against, up against, and you can help us through prayer. You can actually pray for these operations that we're trying to get done to rescue these people. Absolutely. But ultimately, we want to encourage folks to not only get educated, get involved prayerfully, but get behind supporting the organization. And working in countries uh, globally um, on a variety of continents. We mentioned Latin America, Africa, South Asia, Southeast Asia. You can get more information again online at IJM. That's for International Justice Missions, IJM.org. And Sean Litton, Vice President, Field Operations for International Justice Missions, we appreciate the time. Thank you so much, Craig. It's been a pleasure. 
Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.